Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologize for the lower sound quality. Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, local politics and development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Adam Auerbach, Assistant Professor at the American University, and Tarek Tashil, Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. We discussed their research on COVID-19 challenges in India's so-called slum settlements. They explain what role informal settlement leaders play in addressing COVID-19 challenges in these areas. This study has recently been published in World Development. You can find more information about Adam and Tarek in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Adam and Tarek, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm excited to talk about a world development article that you have that really looks at how leaders in squatter settlements or what we might think of as slums in India are addressing the challenges of COVID. So maybe just to start off for listeners who aren't familiar with these kinds of settlements, Adam, would you like to describe what the squatter settlements look like? Absolutely. Ellen, thank you so much for having us both. It's really exciting to be here with you and to discuss our recent study. So it didn't take long into, I think, when people started realizing how serious the pandemic was going to be in March 2020, that urban slum settlements, both in India and globally, and these neighborhoods housed what's estimated to be around 850 million people, were going to be especially vulnerable to virus transmission. These are very densely populated urban neighborhoods where it's very difficult to socially distance, not only in public, because of their lack of property rights, you'll have amorphously built settlements where the alleyways are sort of winding and twisting and very narrow. Some cases, you can only be shoulder to shoulder with somebody. I mean, also even within somebody's individual house in the neighborhoods that that Tarek and I have studied, most of the houses have one room, uh, maybe at most two, an average of about five or six people living in a house. So if someone did track the disease, it'd be difficult to stay away from other people even within your house. Also, we know that squatter settlements are very marginalized in terms of their access to very basic public goods and services. And the hygienic measures that are recommended, having access to clean running water, proper sanitation, solid waste removal, all of these things are very hard to come by. And for many people, they may be available, but not even within your house, further compelling people to go outside. That yes, maybe you have running water, but you need to go to some centralized place in the neighborhood to a community water tap. Maybe there's a bathroom, but it's a shared bathroom. We know where everybody has to go there. Also, for many of these settlements, they lack formal property rights. And because of this, the threat of eviction is a looming one for many residents in these communities. This really shapes state-society relations, where residents really feel as though the state is dismissive, it's predatory in many cases, and calls for co-production. States and societies need to come together to solve issues surrounding not only virus transmission, but also economic distress around measures to contain it are going to be challenging in contexts where residents, for good reasons, are quite skeptical about what the state has to offer and what they're going to do. So our study took place in the context of urban India and, and two specific cities in northern India, in Jaipur, Rajasthan, and Bhopal, Madhya Pradesh, which are state capitals of two states in northern India. Jaipur has about 3 million people for context, and Bhopal has about uh, 2 million people. Thank you. You look specifically at the role of slum leaders, and so I'm wondering that you can describe what a slum leader does, how they emerge, what kinds of resources they can mobilize, and their role inside the slums. Thanks, Ellen, for having us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And it's a good question, and I think it's an important one because 
Slum leaders are people who are very misconstrued in kind of popular narratives, both in India and I think more broadly. So within India, there's a kind of Bollywoodized idea of who a slum leader is. Slumdog Millionaire or the hit Netflix show Sacred Games, which shows these mafia dons who hold sway to a mixture of coercion and intimidation, some kind of criminality. The reality is quite different. The kind of Bollywoodized depiction doesn't really hold a lot of water. The slum leaders that Adam and I encountered, especially in Jaipur and Bhopal, are much more kind of entrepreneurial political brokers. And by that, I mean, they are people who emerge within the community and are really empowered by their popularity that's earned through establishing a record for getting things done for constituents. As Adam mentioned, most of these settlements, people lack formal property titles, but they often also lack formal access to a number of welfare programs, service delivery, and even where they have legal access, the kind of actual delivery of those services is very poor. So slum residents face a number of challenges in getting kind of access to basic services, be it water, electricity or paved roads. And slum leaders come up in that context as people within the community who show some ability for helping citizens solve those problems. And that could be something as small as helping them apply for card to get subsidized food grains, a voter ID card in order to vote in elections, or some of these local community goods, something like a water tank or a streetlight. And really through establishing those records of competence, as we show in some of our other work, work that we've co-authored and Adam has written on his own, these leaders establish themselves as people who have some kind of sway within the community. And that attracts the attention of political parties who then compete to incorporate these political leaders into their apparatuses with hope that they will help deliver the vote of these very vote-rich slum communities. These are, in fact, the, the very conditions that Adam talked about, the fact that they're so densely populated also makes them dense pools of votes that are incredibly attractive for political parties. And slum leaders on the flip side want to parlay some of their political influence in order to get goods for the communities with the help of these political parties. And so those kinds of material transactions and distributive exchanges really happen through these local slum leaders. And so there are a couple of stylized facts, if you will. They are very much from the community. So all the slum leaders we were going to talk about are from the slums in which they work. They're not parachuted in from above. Parties can't install their cronies to be slum leaders. They're people who bubble up from within these settlements. They are people who largely establish themselves through a track record for getting things done. And the majority, although not all of them, are formally politically incorporated into political parties. So I would say those are the two or three kind of big stylized facts about who slum leaders are. And just demographically, I'll say that the vast majority of them are men, about 88% of the 629 that we surveyed in 2016 across these two cities were men, but 12% are women, which is maybe low, but may also be high given that there are no formal quotas. These are women who've come up very much on their own merit and steam. And the majority of them are first generation migrants. So they are themselves low income, poor migrants who have no kind of political dynastic ties. They have no wealth advantage with which they start. They really are these first-generation political entrepreneurs. Great, thank you. And so when you put your two visions together, right, I mean, what we're really looking at at the beginning of the pandemic is a recognition that there's going to be a lot of problems to be solved, trying to figure out social distancing, trying to make sure that people are able to sustain livelihoods in the face of economic crises, as well as the health measures that, that need to be put into place. And so you were in a great position, I think, and have really produced some interesting work and a great paper on how slum leaders 
then are responding to these crises. So can you tell us a little bit more both about the work that you did, the research and how it came about, but also then what the findings are? Yeah, thanks, Ellen. In terms of our research design, and and it's been interesting continuing to think about this as so many researchers now are thinking through how to do research in the context of the pandemic when we can't actually travel to the countries that we study. We were very fortunate in the sense that, first of all, as our previous responses suggested, this paper really built on what is now a decade work on urban informal spaces that both Ark and I have worked on individually and together. And this particular project really built on several waves of surveys, uh, one that Tarek and I had done in 2015 with ordinary residents across 110 squatter settlements in Jaipur and Bhopal. With some of those resident responses, we were able to identify nodes of informal authority in these settlements. So who the slum leaders actually are, both through that survey and a census that we conducted of party workers across these 110 settlements. So very well-defined, crystallized sample frame of the slum leaders across these 110 settlements. We then surveyed slum leaders across those settlements in 2016, 629 slum leaders across these 110 slum settlements. And fortuitously, we asked for their mobile number during that, our slum leader survey in 2016. And so when we were motivated to launch into this study, we first tried with a few numbers to sort of see if we can get through to some of the slum leaders and with a little bit of success at the beginning, decided to scale it up and we're very happy. I mean, we had a, a response rate of just over 50%. We were able to survey 321 of the slum leaders over the phone, working with a, a survey team in India that both Tark and I had worked with on many occasions beforehand. I think cumulatively, it was all of our first experiences doing anything over the phone. The rapport that we had built with these very same actors, with the residents in their neighborhoods, is to thank for this really high response rate that we had. And it also allowed us to really sort of contextualize our findings, that it wasn't sort of just the responses from the slum leaders in a vacuum. We had waves of prior resident survey data, information about the slum leaders themselves, and extensive qualitative fieldwork both Tarek and I have done in these neighborhoods. I think all of this sort of came together to sort of allow us to do this study, to really look into that we know before the pandemic that these are really important problem solvers in the neighborhoods, doing lots of different things. And so is that type of problem solving persisting during the pandemic and lockdown? If it is, what exactly are they doing? How are they able to do it? Yeah, if I could just add two quick points on that. There was a lot of conversation at the onset of the pandemic among all of us as researchers, especially for our graduate students, for young field workers. How do you continue to work in this time? And I found myself actually not having a great amount of insight on that, other than to say the same thing that I always say, which is that I really believe in the value of deep, sustained engagement with your field sites, because, and some of that you can't now start in the middle of the pandemic. And I think the value of sustained field work is really, at the end of the day, why we were able to do this project. And you can't begin that in the onset of the pandemic, but I think the pandemic served as a reminder of the value of that kind of sustained engagement with particular communities. And I think that was really important. And a second motivation more broadly was we had a unique way to actually get insights from slum communities themselves. At the onset of the pandemic, as Adam talked about, there was a lot of unjustifiable concern in India about how the pandemic would unfold specifically in slums for the reasons he mentioned. But there was a lot of talk about slums with very little talk coming from within slums. And I think we felt that it was important to the limited degree that we could to have some of those voices represented in discussions about them, because there's a very quick and easy way in which slums can kind of be easily stigmatized as the place where the problem would happen. One of the interesting insights from just the preliminary work we did was that actually some residents had the reverse worry that this was a rich person's disease that was being imported from people who traveled abroad. 
and being going to be brought into their community. But the way it was being talked about in public discourse was exactly the opposite, that this was somehow going to be a disease that slums spread to the rest of India or to the rest of Indian cities. And so I think for those reasons, it was important to us as well to draw on our networks within these populations to have them actually speak for themselves a little bit. Great. Can you tell me a little bit about what you found in terms of what kinds of strategies they were using to overcome problems, how people were seeing the issues of social distancing within the slums? Absolutely. One of our sort of bottom line findings is that they have very much persisted at the height of the lockdown when movement was largely suspended. As part of our survey findings, the police were very much an omnipresent thing. Many residents complaining about police violence, but even in this context of suspended movements, India's slum leaders were performing um, a lot of problem-solving roles in this intense moment. Uh, but they were doing so in slightly different ways for slightly different purposes. The routine acts of claymaking that they're usually doing are around securing public infrastructure, getting potholes paved over or, or paved roads in the first place, sewer lines put in, drain lines put in, facilitating access for individual residents to get different types of cards. A lot of that claim-making momentum was largely sort of suspended to solve much more immediate and much more dire problems around just getting access to very basic food rations through the public distribution system. They were very much on the phone, many of them contacting local politicians and officials, trying to get information about the availability of resources, securing those resources. So the, the phone, of course, was a very important sort of medium of communication. And this also sort of differs that, as Tarek and I have both found, the role of numbers in making claims in a normal sense before the pandemic is very, very important. That you want to show that you and your group in your neighborhood have, Hindi, we would say, lok shakti, right? People power. That if you're making a claim, you want to go as a group or you'd be even considering you know, holding a small protest. Well, that was largely out of the question during the lockdown when you can't form in those sorts of groups. So a repertoires of collective action, as it were, in these communities is going to essentially be sort of undermined by the nature of the lockdown. But Lots of phone calls with politicians and officials to secure food rations. Although we find, and this also mirrors what we find before the pandemic, that the efficacy of slum leaders to actually do these things dramatically varies. That not all of them were able to gather information, or some of them were able to gather some information about some government relief schemes, not others. So this is one thing we outline in the paper, just the, that raw access to information. What is out there that we can get information about, that we can make a claim for and distribute in our neighborhood? We also found considerable variation in the ability of slum leaders to get a hold and make phone calls to politicians to ask for this help. And having received phone calls from politicians asking what help is needed in the settlements and reported rates of political responsiveness of those politicians. So I think a second sort of larger finding would be that the education of slum leaders continues to be a very, very important factor. Tarak had mentioned this is one of the, the drivers of slum leader emergence in the first place. Education is so important in being able to navigate state institutions, writing petitions. It really continues to be so and explains some of that variation in access to information about government release schemes and the ties with parties themselves. As we explore in sort of a, a separate paper from this, political elites oftentimes look for educated slum leaders to bring into their parties because they know that this is such an important signal to residents of efficacy, that they're likely to be popular because of their education. Partisan embeddedness is also a really important finding uh, that we get back from the survey data, that those slum leaders that are embedded in party networks were much more likely to have information spreading through those networks. And that also facilitated communications with politicians. 
maybe the last major finding would be that it's really important not to approach these settlements as homogenous in terms of their access to public goods and services that we know in relation to other types of neighborhoods in the city, particular property middle-class neighborhoods, these settlements are highly marginalized, but there's significant variation across these neighborhoods in their access to piped water, to roads, to streetlights, to schools. And what we find is that in particular variation in across settlements and household access to piped water taps had a, an association with reported difficulties over social distancing. So for those settlements where most residents did not have a tap within their house, as I mentioned earlier, this compels them to go outside and some leaders are more likely to report that this was an issue for social distancing. Just to really quickly, I want to clarify, when you're talking about people power or the ability to mobilize numbers, I mean, there's also a difference in the sheer numbers, how dense different thumbs are. And if I remember from previous work that you've done, that that's also a significant driver. So when we're looking at the slum leaders who, especially who politicians reach out to, are they reaching out to those who came from the more densely populated slums that, that actually are kind of the bigger vote banks and who I would presume they also have these longer standing ties with? Or is there something else that emerges at this time that changes things? Really fascinating question, Alan. I think we probably could have spent even more time in the paper exploring some of the settlement level variables. I think we really centered our analysis, at least in that paper, on some of the individual sort of determinants and sort of embeddedness in networks and education. But as you suggest, the, the types of settlements that Tarek and I study vary tremendously in their population numbers. These are really important social and spatial and political units. People identify with the neighborhood. These are named neighborhoods. Politicians in the cities see these neighborhoods as those with, you know, with distinct social networks and relationships with them. And so the slum settlement is a really important unit of analysis as well. And because they vary so dramatically in terms of their population, the average slum settlement in our sample is about 2,500 people, but with an enormous standard deviation. You know, we have one settlement that has upwards of 30,000 people, and some of the smallest ones have about 300 people. And some of our other work, we show that this type of differences in terms of population does fragment political attention that these neighborhoods get, and, and that can have downstream implications for their ability to secure basic goods and services. But it's a fascinating idea and one that I think we could have explored even more in this paper. I think that's a really good point. I think we had 321 leaders across 79 settlements, and we focused on the leader level variation, as Adam said. And I think one of the reasons we did that was just because we did see so much leader level variation. So for example, one of the things we looked at was, and I think this is a point that people might know, but is worth underscoring, is the so-called lives versus livelihoods trade-off that COVID made all of us face in terms of containment strategies that shut down the economy versus the public health concerns of the pandemic. It's hard to think of places that face this trade-off more acutely than an Indian slum. 95% of residents in our sample are informally employed. So any day they don't work, they don't get paid. And at the same time, they're in these incredibly dense settings that are hard to maintain social distancing with all the infrastructural inadequacies. So that trade-off is really, really sharp. And the Indian government was aware of this. And one of the things that it did was it had some very highly publicized relief schemes, not just for some residents, but for residents across India, especially poor residents, that were announced at the same time as it imposed this, by global standards, incredibly stringent lockdown in this sudden and unannounced fashion that really threw these slum communities into kind of a panic in dealing with this situation. And one thing that we found incredible variation with was how many of the five key welfare schemes that these residents were eligible for, how many of them did slum leaders even know about? And we found quite a lot of variation in that. So we had about half of the sample knowing less than two of the five, and then the other half knowing three or more. And we saw that the determinants of that were 
interestingly, things like pre-existing education levels that we had found to be really important in driving their everyday problem solving. A second thing we found variation one was how much were they in contact with their political superiors asking for assistance for the slum? If we can't leave the slum and if we can't go to work, are you going to send help, whether it's water tankers to give us the supply of water we're being told to wash our hands now, how are we going to do that? And we found that there was quite a lot of variation both in, in whether a leader had actually reached out, whether they received help if they reached out, and whether a politician had in fact reached out to them directly and said, hey, could we help and can in any way help either a politician or a bureaucrat? And these are, again, important even before the pandemic, but they became especially important at this time that the issues were so acute. And with that, we found with those kinds of politician contacts, we actually again found that pre-pandemic levels of partisan embeddedness. So we had a, from surveying these guys in 2016, we had asked how frequently do you attend party meetings? We found the frequency with which they attended party meetings in 2016 positively associated with their likelihood of getting political responsiveness after the lockdown was announced. So I think a key point is that what the world before the pandemic significantly influenced how the pandemic was experienced by slum residents, whether it was these infrastructural disparities across slum settlements that Adam talked about, or it was the disparities in how embedded and educated slum leaders were in the run-up to the pandemic. So yes, the pandemic was this sudden moment, but in some ways it was also a very harsh mirror onto the ongoing realities that residents had faced even before it. So you've mentioned a couple of times, and we'll come back to it, the relationship with political parties. What I wonder about is if there's any ways in which there's direct relationship with NGOs or are NGOs so politicized that's not a direct source of support that they don't reach out directly? How do we understand the relationship between NGOs, political parties, and then the slum leaders? It's a very good question. And NGOs are certainly a presence in both slum communities and more generally within India. There's no shortage of NGOs of various types, some of which are more explicitly tied to political parties. And I've done some work on some of those, but many of which are not, many of which are apolitical NGOs. And we did get in the qualitative interviews, we did find examples of NGOs helping slum leaders and often being the via media through which slum leaders could make some of their claims or even helping for, for example, food packets to come and be distributed within the slum settlement. But I think, again, speaking to continuities with pre-pandemic politics, NGOs are not the main vehicle through which assistance or service delivery happens. And maybe that's different in context outside of India, but I think it's very clear that the state is very much the object of attention for most slum residents and slum leaders. And so while NGOs were a presence in some of the interviews that we had and sometimes can help residents lobby the state, especially for some of these larger infrastructural goods, I really do think the, the kind of takeaway from our paper was that very much in keeping with life before the pandemic, it is the state at the end of the day that matters most. This is a really important question. I think it also, you know, building on what Tarek just said, it also speaks to some of the scope conditions of our study. Jaipur and Bhopal represents, are part of a, a larger sort of universe of over 50 million plus cities in India, but a much larger constellation of small towns and cities. Towns like Jaipur and Bhopal, NGO activity is much thinner compared to places like Delhi and Mumbai, Bangalore, Chennai. A lot of the work on urban informality in India and urban governance sort of centers on the biggest mega cities, I mean, just a few of them. But in Jaipur and Bhopal, as Tarkin mentions, there's some NGO activity, but in comparison to some of the larger cities, it's much more sparse and is oftentimes uh, connected to political party. For instance, the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, and you know, Tarek has a, an entire book on this, of, of course, but we would see oftentimes in organizations like 
Save a Bharti, which organized small-scale health camps, cataract surgery, important things. But NGOs are interestingly not super conspicuous as something that slum residents would turn to. Part of that flows from the cities that we chose, but I actually think that makes the context, at least within urban India that we studied, more representative than those insights, for instance, from Dharavi in Mumbai, famously Asia's biggest slum um, that has over a million people. That is a statistical outlier. Most slum settlements are considerably smaller in much smaller cities, with if cities with much lower levels of state capacity, fiscal capacity, and lower levels of NGO activity. So I want to think about the normative aspects of this, and particularly the normative aspects of the relationship between the slum leaders and the political parties, and then their kind of responsiveness. Because one could argue, and this is exactly what accountability looks like, this is me holding officials to be responsive to the voters. You can also have a more critical view towards that. So I'd be really interested in hearing how you think about the normative value of those relationships and the importance of them, and how you think that that then relates to the broader political field in India. It's a fantastic question. And I think one we've wrestled with and gone back and forth with, not just for this paper, but for our work in these communities more generally. On the one hand, I think we're pushing back against the idea that these are purely exploitative actors who are either criminal thugs or just exploitative extractors who prey on the communities that they are influential within. And I think when that's the narrative that we're faced with, we're often making the argument that these actors are often providing some minimal measure of bottom-up accountability and some minimal measure of requesting service delivery, leveraging the high rates of turnout and the dense vote banks that they are embedded within, or inducing at least some responsiveness from a state that's often standoffish at best or venal at worst. And I think to the degree that we're showing that they're from the community, that they come up through genuine popularity for earning a record of competence, that if they don't maintain that record, they're often shunted aside for some other aspirant. We we document that in our work. These aren't static environments. People who do not maintain a record for competence are moved aside for young aspirants who do. You know, sometimes younger people coming up within the slum who have more facility with digital technology, where a lot of the service delivery action is now in India. And we've got both anecdotal and survey evidence to that effect. So when you uncover that, I think there's a normative case to be made for these figures being important sites of community accountability that are often left outside of all of these community-driven development discourses. So there's all this push for participatory development models, but almost all of them look to and sometimes explicitly install their own kinds of governance structures within slum settlements and bypass these actors they see as necessarily exploitative and a problem. And so to those kinds of discussions, I think we've served the role of saying we should see these in maybe a more positive light. I think we're also, however, careful not to romanticize these figures and say that what are the problems with relying on this as the main model for accountability? Well, I think the biggest one is who are they responsive to? And we show some of our work even before the pandemic that they are not responsive equally to everyone. They are also making political calculations. And so when you make accountability entirely dependent on the kind of political machinations of these actors and citizens who are not seen as necessarily very attractive clients for them to work with are going to be left out of this. And so to the degree that that might be worrisome, we think about people, the work that we've done, we've shown that there are preferences for Uh, residents who are more long-time residents of the slum, who might be seen as more socially influential. Well, if you're a newcomer who's come into the slum, how are you going to get your voice heard? That's just as one example. We might worry over time, although right now we don't see, we haven't found 
that members of specific castes or faiths are discriminated against. That's a dynamic process over time. And, you know, especially the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party, if it is very dominant, it is feasible that over time, Muslim residents, and many of these slums we work in have both Hindu and Muslim residents, Muslim residents might have a harder time getting their voice heard. And so I think those are where the concerns come up, is that whose voice will get represented is one that begs attention when you place it entirely in these local political actors' hands to induce a response from the state. Thank you. So you mentioned the possibility of previous leaders being usurped because people who are more technologically savvy can come up and make claims better. Or we could imagine, especially today, maybe that those who had closer access for whatever reason to medical care or different senses of knowledge and knowledge providers might also do better. But a lot of the story that you've told is one of continuity, that 2016 and pre-slum conditions continued to affect how well a slum leader did during at least that stage of the pandemic. I'm wondering if there's ways in which the pandemic may also be disruptive. So does it simply strengthen and maintain the existing political power structures, the actors who are doing well before are the ones that do well after or during? Or are there ways in which we're either seeing or could imagine that these are disruptive and lead to the emergence of new, not necessarily different actors in terms of still the same positions, but new individuals becoming slum leaders or changing actually the way in which politics takes place? Fascinating question, Alan. Thank you for that. I think in the short and medium term, certainly the pandemic has thrown even deeper forms of economic distress into these communities, further sort of fueling the need for people to turn to the state for some kind of assistance. And we know from our work and a larger body of literature that when people from these communities approach the state, only 12% of residents in these neighborhoods that we surveyed think that if they went alone to a government official, that they would actually get the audience of that official and some degree of attention. And so that need has very much continued and probably deepened, but the need for mediation in those relationships most certainly has not gone away. So I think if anything, this is gonna even further fuel that sort of bottom-up activity of engagement with the state, further underscoring the need for mediation and, and the role that some leaders importantly play in these communities. There are larger changes, and this is something, you know, I'm just thinking about this right now, and Tarek has done much more work on circular migrants, but there's increasing calls for there needs to be greater recognition over the incredible pervasive uncertainties that the urban poor face and circular migrant in India's cities. And the extent to which this has destabilized or will have short or medium or long-term implications for the movement of people, it also is going to have implications for who are the populations within the neighborhoods, who are the next generations of people that are going to sort of be bubbling up they can potentially sort of push aside existing leaders. As we've mentioned you know, uh, several times in the course of the conversation, informal leadership in these settlements can be essentially assumed. If you walk into the settlement, you will start to acknowledge quite quickly the contours of informal leadership, and they're almost always multifocal. There's al almost always multiple slum leaders at any point in time, even within the same parties, uh, competing over the support from within the community. And so Tarek had mentioned new generations of residents coming up can displace existing leaders if they show themselves to be more competent. An increasing face of that competence might be being able to use smartphones for things um, and engage that sort of world, which has been so important. So that would be my initial take on that. Maybe building on your question, but taking it in a slightly more macro direction, the pandemic has thrown up a lot of questions regarding the role of cities in India's future, right? So on the one hand, 
one of the big pushes within India is this understanding that there's a massive crisis in the countryside. The recent farmer protests that maybe many of you will even be familiar with being in the headlines are driven by the fact that there's tremendous agrarian distress. And the solution that's most often offered is that we need to move people off of very small size landholding, unproductive farms and into the cities. But the problem that many people have raised is that, well, what are they going to meet when they come into the cities? There is tremendous lack of jobs in cities, especially for unskilled workers. We see that most people who come from the countryside will come either as circular migrants or people uh, who settle more permanently in the slums we work in. And if we are asking and advocating a greater influx in, as Adam says, one of the questions is going to be, first of all, what are those slums going to look like? Where are these pockets of people going to settle? And the second is that the pandemic has shown that our cities are not always equipped at the best of times to handle public health and other kinds of disasters, but certainly not if we expect in any way that the COVID pandemic is not just a singly of an exceptional event, but maybe a harbinger of kinds of crises that to follow that Indian cities have to do a lot of thinking about what they're going to look like in this future. And as that reality shifts, the kind of contours of what makes an effective leader might shift. A very obvious direction is the increasing centralization of benefit delivery. And we discuss this a little bit in our book is that the landscape of service delivery is increasingly getting centralized under the central government or the Modi government. And that might mean that affiliation with the BJP party, which so far has not affiliating with one party or the other is less impactful than just being affiliated with a party. That might change in the future if you have an increasingly dominant national party at the center that's increasingly centralizing benefit delivery. Then in some ways, those centralizing tendencies have only been exacerbated in the wake of the pandemic. So all of these currents are kind of intersecting. And I'm sure they will shift in some ways the determinants of who's an effective leader, in addition to all the kinds of stuff around technology that we're talking about. And so I think that's what's kind of interesting to maybe follow these cohorts now that we've started working with these leaders over time and see these spaces, how the nodes of political leadership change, even as some of the basic things that people want from their leaders will always be the same in terms of effective and competent assistance and service delivery. Thank you. That's fantastic. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I always learned so much from both of you. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that listeners know or other insights that we've missed that you want to make sure we hear? No, I don't think those questions were fantastic. And really, it was nice to re-engage with this project and think through the world of Indian slum settlements and squatter settlements in the wake of COVID. I will say that we're now reaching a point where worst of the pandemic, certainly the lockdown has been lifted and many of the communities that we're working with have resumed to normal, quote unquote, and definitely in terms of their economic activities. And one thing that I hope will remain from this moment is an understanding of just how hard everyday life is. One point we didn't mention that came through in the surveys was there were areas where things did not get appreciably worse during the pandemic. And that largely reflected how bad they were even before the pandemic. So a lot of people said, well, the issues around access to water didn't get worse during the pandemic, but that's because we had very little faith in their delivery, even during normal times. And so I think we've talked a lot about the disruption that COVID offered to these communities, and it certainly did. But in other ways, these communities were in some ways the least affected relative to many more privileged citizens such as us, because the realities they faced were so impoverished to begin with in many senses. And I think sometimes we talk about COVID with this sense of it being such a disruption, which no doubt it was, but communities like some communities can often be really important reminders of the kinds of precarities they were facing every day, really put a different perspective on how disruptive COVID even was. 
immensely important points that Targ just made. And if Targ also doesn't mind me also plugging that we recently completed a book manuscript that really unpacks the emergence of these political networks over time. And so please keep an eye out for our continued work on these neighborhoods and the vulnerabilities that they face and how they form leadership, connect with larger political networks in the city to mitigate risk. Congratulations. Do we know when it's coming out or do we have a date yet? 2000 something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having us, Ellen. It was a pleasure. Thank you.